0: Welcome to the Inside Angle Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Gordon Moore, and with me today is Matt Salo. He is the Executive Director of the National Association of Medicaid Directors and started with him in February of 2011, which I believe may actually be when the organization came together, although I'm going to ask more about that. And today we're going to talk about where is Medicaid going. Welcome, Matt. Thanks so much, Gordon. Great to be here. Thanks. Tell me a little bit about NAMD and, and how it came about, and, and what it's up to now. Sure. So uh, we
1: actually prefer NAMD. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> oh, it's it's quite all right. I I have to tell that to my members every now and then as well. But um, yeah. So the organization really has only been around for about nine years, uh, which gives people some second thoughts. Like, wait, what a minute? Why so young? And um, you know, not surprisingly the Medicaid directors have been around as long as the Medicaid program, which is essentially 1965. But prior to about nine years ago, the Medicaid directors existed in a kind of large umbrella group that represented not just the state Medicaid directors, but the whole spectrum of state human services or or welfare agencies. So food stamps, now SNAP, TANF, child support, child welfare, et cetera, and uh, existed that way for for decades. And uh, quite frankly, the Medicaid directors never liked that arrangement, never felt that they were sufficiently well supported or staffed or resourced. And so about 10 years ago, they all got together and kind of had like a midnight palace coup and sort of voted unanimously to pull out of that group, to reincorporate as a standalone entity, devoted entirely to the issues, the needs, of the Medicaid directors. And um, one of the first things they did was hired me. And so we've been on this ride for
0: about nine years and it's been really exciting. I can imagine them getting together and wanting to focus more on their portfolio because it's significant, it's huge. It's like, you know, it's like 18% of the economy or some you know, massive number. I mean, Medicaid is massive in every single state and territory. It is, I mean Medicaid itself is
1: 3% of the nation's GDP and it's 20 25 30% of pretty much every state budget so it's big it's growing in that's you know it's it's significantly different from both a budget but also just a philosophical standpoint from all of those other type agencies. You know, it is healthcare, it is insurance, it is politically relevant uh, in ways that those other programs just aren't. So, it was a long time coming for them to to make that decision and interestingly the the straw that broke the camel's back uh, as as they explained to me was it was the debate around the creation of the Affordable Care Act where, you know, Arguably, this was one of the biggest public policy changes in uh, kind of a generation and clearly the biggest legislative change to Medicaid since 1965. And the Medicaid directors kind of looked around and said, where was our voice in the debate around this this law? And the answer was, it wasn't really there. And that, to them, really kind of sparked the something's got to change We've got
0: to be more relevant, and we've got to do something to to change this dynamic. And so that's what we've done. So let's pivot now to, obviously, it's been up now since 2011. There's lots been happening. Medicaid has gone through expansions in many states. There's a lot of concern about the impact on budgets. And I'm wondering, where is it going? Yeah, well, Medicaid is, uh, it's relevant in a political
1: and fiscal and philosophical way. Uh, more so than I think it ever has been in the program's history. it is It has become such a bedrock, you know, as, as I mentioned, not just of state budgets, not just of, you know, GDP, but the healthcare system itself. I mean, Medicaid is the largest health insurance program in the country. We cover more than 70 million Americans. We cover about 50% of all the births in this country in any given year we're also by far the largest provider of long-term services and supports, which is a real shock to most people who sort of think, oh, you know, long-term care, nursing homes, oh, that's Medicare, right? And the answer is absolutely not. No, it is Medicaid. And it's kind of one of the quiet secrets, um, you know, not so quiet, not so secret anymore. But Medicaid also the largest provider of Mental health services, the largest provider of HIV/AIDS treatments, it is big and it is relevant and it is such a significant backbone of of the U.S. healthcare system that uh, you know, despite attempts to repeal and replace, it is it is here, it is here to stay, and we now have to figure out where is it going. And I think the you know the short answer to to where is it going is you know, as I look around at at the 56 states and territories um, and we can we can do a little game to figure out if you can help me name how we got to 56 there's a civics bonus point in there for you but if, if i look around at all of my members and sort of say what is the common theme what is the thread that binds together states as diverse uh, as new york and texas california nebraska alaska and everything in between it's really this sense that they're trying to use medicaid to essentially transform the underlying healthcare system in this country and that the kind of the bedrock principles of how healthcare is both delivered and paid for in this country for decades is really kind of dysfunctional and the short term we use for the historic way that things have been done is fee for service and that's been a philosophy that's guided a lot of healthcare, a lot of medicaid a lot of medicare a lot of commercial insurance for a very very long time and it's essentially this sense of um you know a provider delivers a service and a provider gets paid for that service full stop and it, it kind of leads to a sort of a fragmentation of, of, of the care delivery system in that we have acute care providers and mental health providers and pharmacists and behavioral health providers and long-term care providers and everybody else, none of them are coordinated, none of them are talking to one another, none of them are trying to look holistically at the patient to figure out what do they need. And ultimately, that is because of and perpetuates a payment incentive in this country that we call paying for volume. So, traditionally in the healthcare system, you know, if a physician says, "Hey, we're going to do one MRI," then we pay for one MRI. And if the physician says, "Well, we're going to do 50 MRIs," we're going to pay for 50. And that's crazy, because that ne- that doesn't has never had a real linkage to well, why are we doing this? Is this making the patient healthy? What are the outcomes? And so to kind of wrap that all in, what Medicaid is trying to do and where we're trying to take Medicaid is to transform that underlying fee-for-service system into a better managed, better coordinated, more holistic system of care that is patient-centered and ultimately the payment incentives for everybody involved, nursing homes, hospitals, physicians, everybody in between, the payment system and the payment incentives should be angled towards how do we pay for value,
0: not just paying for volume. When I think about state programs, there's been a big move towards Engaging with managed care organizations. I think about the state of Iowa moving and having, you know, a few years ago, let's have three or four MCOs step in to manage a budget for a segment of the Medicaid population in that state. Is that the means of transformation you're talking about, or is it more than that?
1: That's a great example of it. Um, although, what I would say is that looking to managed care organizations or MCOs is an incredibly powerful tool to get a job done. It is a means to an end. It is not the end in and of itself. The end is, you know, a system where you've got better managed, better coordinated, more holistic care. And many states, Iowa is a great example, Texas, Tennessee, Arizona. Arizona's been doing this for 35 years many states are looking to mcos to kind of be the force multiplier for the state to carry out this vision of healthcare transformation but that's not the only way you can do it and in fact what we've seen in many other states um i'll use massachusetts as an example massachusetts is a state that used to do big mcos and relatively recently they kind of stepped back and said well what's the value proposition for what we've been doing? Are we getting an ROI both on the dollar we're spending as well as are we seeing significant or sufficient improvements in patient outcomes for what we're spending? And ultimately, they said, we don't think so. So they pivoted a little bit, and they said, okay, well, we're going to, as opposed to these MCOs, we're going to try something a little different. And so they kind of turned to accountable care organizations or ACOs. And on some level, they're not hugely different in terms of uh, what they're intended to do. They're clearly intended to you know, be a big umbrella entity that can better manage and coordinate care. It's just the structure uh, of them is a little different, but that's what made sense in Massachusetts. Again, it's a slightly different vehicle, a slightly different tool to get to that end. And then there there are states on the other end of the spectrum, but I think this is this is no less important states like Wyoming or Connecticut where there's no actual quote unquote MCOs at all. Now, in Wyoming, it's a big frontier state, hard for an MCO to really take purchase, and in Connecticut, they tried MCOs in years past and really didn't like the experience. And so what both of those states have done, for different reasons, but they've gotten to the same end of, they've essentially looked at kind of the managed care industry and said, how are you guys doing this? How are you changing the the models of care? How are you engaging with providers and patients to improve the system? And rather than contract out with an MCO or an ACO or whatever, these states are kind of doing it in-house. And again, in Wyoming, that makes sense because you're not gonna get big MCOs in a huge frontier state. And in Connecticut, they're small enough and they're well-resourced enough, they, they can bring that kind of thing in-house. And so for me, it doesn't matter really what the vehicle is, it's what is that goal? What is that endpoint? And that endpoint is the same for every state that we talk to. It's improving that ex- the patient experience of care, Improving healthcare outcomes and trying to bend that cost curve.
0: Yeah, I was going to go there. So thank you for the perfect segue. How how do the states know that they're successful in their interventions as they're trying things MCO or bringing it in house? What are their markers of success? So there's a lot of different markers, um, and I think it's it's important
1: because you know if you if you think back, you know, fifteen, twenty, twenty five years ago. Um, you know, really kind of pre-managed care, pre, you know, big healthcare reform transformation, we didn't really have very many metrics at all. We had a lot of process metrics. And I, I remember there was a state probably 20 years ago, and they had kind of put together a new claims processing system. And they were proudly proclaiming that they could pay claims to providers you know, 90% of them were going to get paid within 48 hours, and that that therefore made them the best Medicaid program in the country. And it was like, oh, well, that's certainly an interesting metric, but, you know, barring any other real metrics, okay, we'll go with that. But what we've really come to learn over the years is that process metrics are not what's important. And so what states have taken to doing and what states are doing in partnership with the MCOs or partnership with the ACOs or on their own is thinking very, very seriously about you know things like HEDIS scores or CAPS measures or other types of patient experience metrics to be a much better indicator of, hey, is, is what we're doing working? And one of the really important takeaways that, that we saw is that this is really changing how state government works. And to kind of use that example of that state 20 years ago, you know, 20 years ago, state Medicaid programs were essentially passive bill payers. And again, you know, a provider sends in a claim, hey, we did this to a patient, pay for it. And that's what we did. We paid it. We were passive. We paid bills. That's kind of what we did. But over the last 15, 20 years, Medicaid has really transformed into an active purchaser of health. And again, whether that's through managed care or other types of techniques, it's changing the dynamic of how state government works. And so what we're seeing all over the country is uh, states having to transform their workforce. So you no longer need a Medicaid agency uh, staffing level that has hundreds of claims processors. Those are those are kind of redundant. You know, the managed care plan will have that or those things aren't really that important. Rather, states are now having to figure out what tools do we need in order to make this public-private partnership work? How are we going to staff up or reconfigure our our staffing plan so that we have a very very different skill set of state government employees rather than you know, hundreds of claims processors. We're going to want people who are pharmacists and who are expert on prescription drug and gene therapy issues as those start to dominate uh, the conversations. You're going to want, you know, medical experts. You're going to want a very robust set of data analytics and a way to capture the data and analyze it and figure out what are we going to do with that now that we've got this data. And then really, The big thing that um, is so, so important is, you know, if you're Iowa or if you're any of these other states that's signing billion-dollar contracts with an MCO, you really have to make sure that you are staffed up with people who are experts in contracting, procurement, again, the data analytics, to be able to set up these dashboards that will show you in real time how are these plans performing in rural, urban, suburban parts of the state to see, is there a red flag that's starting to pop up? Is there a trend or a theme that's starting to emerge? Is it an access issue? Is it a quality issue? What is it? And how do we then mobilize to fix that in real time? And that's a very, very different set of skills. That's a very different skill set than Medicaid has traditionally had. And that's kind of what we're really um, embarking on these days.
0: I was thinking, as you were saying that, if I'm a state Medicaid agency and I'm going to contract with a Molina or Centene or some group like that, then there's a group of people that are going to sign up with them. I have to know what's a reasonable budget for that and then see how they're performing against that and then look for the relationship between the HEDIS scores, uh, if there's one. We, we, We want to make sure to maintain high quality, but also the experience of care, as you mentioned, with the CAP surveys. But then, you know, at the end of the day, if you're blowing the budget, that's just not going to work. So how is that all going to work? And having the ability to risk adjust and do a lot of stuff, and that's, that's pretty complicated. So I imagine that that's a big piece. And, you know, in that context, I was wondering about, tell me what does DISRIP stand for and what your members are thinking about this thing, if it's... Something is going to keep going on.
1: Yeah, so DISRIP, one of the many very complicated acronyms that we use in the Medicaid program, actually stands for Delivery System Reform Incentive Payment. And it's basically a shorthand for kind of a transformation approach that a number of states, big ones like New York and Texas and California and a a bunch in between, have gotten approval to do, approval from the federal government, mostly in the last administration, in the Obama administration, And the concept really was to say, hey, because we are transforming healthcare, we're making this move to manage care, sort of as a as a shorthand. But just hiring a bunch of MCOs doesn't mean you've checked that box and we've transformed healthcare. You know, healthcare, like politics, is very local. And so for real healthcare transformation to succeed and be sustainable, it's gotta really infuse the practice of healthcare at a very very local level, so small mom and pop physicians, um, all the way up to you know federally qualified health centers uh, and everything else. And the the concept behind these particular waivers was if the healthcare system is going to transform its business model away from fee for service, away from paying and getting paid for volume, into a more holistic system with a different business model paying for value value based purchasing if we're going to require the healthcare system to do this in a real and sustainable way we're going to have to make investments investments in you know coaching providers on how to do this transformation you know 55 year old family care physician isn't just gonna be able to snap his fingers and say, hey, we're now value-based purchasing, look at us. It takes work. And so a lot of these big waivers, is what they're called, attempted to kind of put a lot of money up front into helping transform the actual delivery of care. And the the hope is that over a five-year period, those upfront investments that you made are gonna pay off and essentially be budget neutral to the federal government over that five-year period. And um, like I said, there have been a number of states who have done that. Our challenge now is that this administration has said, well, we're done with those. There will be no new ones, and anyone who currently has one should plan on it ending when your five-year cycle is up. And uh, that is... You know, they've been signaling that for quite some time. And I think even the, the Obama administration sort of said, yeah, I think we're kind of done handing these out. So I think it's really going to be incumbent on states who've had them to say, did this work? Were these investments meaningful? How do we transition off of them? And what are the lessons learned for other states who are no longer going to get this opportunity to get kind of about this bolus of federal money up front to help make this transition?
0: What do your members say about that? Is that a a uniform assessment of success or failure of those programs? I don't know that there's a uniform assessment on anything, really.
1: I think, um, you know, with Medicaid, 50-plus different states are doing things in a variety of very different ways, some with more success than less. And I think a lot of it really has to do with the very significant differences that you do have geographically, politically, demographically, Culturally, And, you know, I I think most of them would probably say, yes, these were successful. But I think as with most things, our members are very practical and pragmatic. You know, they know that things don't last forever. They know that changes in administration happen. They have consequences. And so as with many other things, as these particular types of um, investments are winding down, people are starting to think, okay, well, what's next? What's on the horizon? What can we do in the absence of this?
0: And what do you think the next two to three years brings in terms of changes and shifts for your members?
1: One of the things that I think will stay consistent is a focus on this delivery system and payment reform. And, you know, that's going to have all sorts of different aspects, whether it's thinking much more holistically about how do you properly blend in behavioral health, whether that's on the substance abuse side or the mental health side or, or both I think you're gonna see a, a renewed and continued interest and conversation around, what are we doing about the social determinants of health? Those things that aren't medical in nature, that aren't traditionally kind of an insurance-based benefit, but things like housing, food security, transportation uh, to and from medical appointments or otherwise, and things to address social isolation, and things that, that address adverse childhood events. This is a really important area where people are are recognizing that, you know, for a lot of people who have not been well served by the healthcare system, that it, it's not medical interventions or even insurance coverage that are going to make the most meaningful difference in their health care improvement. It's things like transportation and food and housing. And... How do we deal with those gaps? Whose responsibility is it? Is it Medicaid's responsibility to pay for housing for people who are homeless, or is that kind of a is that a bridge too far? So we're going to be kind of struggling with how to do that in a both a meaningful but also appropriate way. Um, and then I think the last thing that that I would say in terms of what are we going to be looking at over the next couple of years is you know I would certainly note that this administration is talking a lot about and and starting to signal its intentions with regulations and everything else on increasing transparency and accountability and program integrity, as they would put it, in terms of how the program is funded and how eligibility determinations uh, are being made. And that could potentially pose some very, very big changes in how the program is funded, uh, which is, to be fair, a very, very complicated system of federal dollars, state dollars, local dollars, and you know a lot of complexity around how states generate revenue. Um, but there are signals that changes are coming, and that could have very, very significant impacts in how the program is funded. And I think that will be coming at a time where Our members are also starting to kind of look look above the clouds a little bit and say, "Hey, you know, we spend most of our time in kind of the day to day, but if we step back and take account of what's going on, kind of economically in this country, you know, we've been on a, you know, an almost ten year economic improvement ride, which has been great, and we're due for an economic downturn. Now, nobody knows when that's coming." Is it tomorrow? Is it five years from now? Is it somewhere in between? Nobody knows. Nobody knows how bad it'll be, but it's going to come. There will come a time. This is how economics work. And so what our folks are really starting to think about is, and we've taken to calling it strategic sustainability. And that kind of brings a whole bunch of threads together of, you know, traditionally, historically, is this country has gone through economic downturns. Medicaid kind of gets hit with this perfect storm of when the economy goes south, then not only do people lose jobs and therefore increase the roles on public programs, Medicaid and others, but at the same time, because of that economic downturn, state revenues go down. And so at the the same time that the cost of providing benefits – because you're serving more people goes up, the ability of states to finance that goes down. And traditionally, what we've had to do is rather crude or or rudimentary efforts to to balance the budget, because that's also important. States have to balance their budget every single year, unlike our friends at the federal government. So historically, what they've done is just sort of this, well, can we cut eligibility? Can we cut benefits? Or can we cut provider reimbursements. And none of those are popular. None of those are good things in the grand scheme of things. But what else are your choices? What we're really looking at now is, and Disrip kind of works into this, and these other types of health transformations work into this by saying, hey, can we make these investments now when times are relatively good, so that when the economy goes south, we're going to be better protected, better supported, and better able to kind of roll with this changing tide without having to resort to, you know, bluntly cutting eligibility, cutting benefits, or dropping reimbursement rates too low. And I think that part of the challenge will be, how does some of this administration's efforts to, you know, squeeze down on Medicaid financing, how is that going to
0: negatively impact some of those strategic sustainability efforts. Wow, winter is coming. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Matt Salo, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. This is a great conversation. For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. You can find more podcast episodes at www.3mhisinsideangle.com.